Good morning. It's a Tuesday, and that means it's time for the Coinbase Institutional Markets Call. My name is Ben Floyd. I'm Head of Execution Services, and I will be your host for today. We're recording on Tuesday, 29th of May at 11 a.m. Eastern. And as always, we're going to do our best to cover the most important parts of crypto, bringing in some of the best minds. Talking of fantastic minds, we have a special guest joining us today, Lauren Abenshine, the Global Head of Core Sales here at Coinbase. Lauren is a true OG and has been in at Coinbase for over five years now and has seen the institutional business all the way from the start. Lauren has just returned from Consensus and Milken and we're starting the call hearing from her and what was on the mind of an institutional investors at both of these conferences. After that, we're then going to pass to Josh, who's going to provide us a market update, including covering the surge in BTC network activity, some large ETH sales, and also an update on all of your favorite memes. David's then going to run us through the macro and provide an update on the debt ceiling and what it means for crypto and what else to be looking out for from a macro perspective. Greg is then going to run us through some exchange flows, what's been happening on the desk. He's also going to run through some changes in open interest and softening of implied vol. Then we're going to round it out with Sid, who's going to cover Web3 and particularly the BRC20s and the congestion of the BTC network this past week. If you are watching on video, don't forget to scan that QR code to check out all of the great research and reports from David and the team and others at Coinbase. Uh, if you are listening on podcast, we'll link to that in the show notes. And of course, don't forget to hit subscribe and rate us if you like what you hear. So without further ado, Lauren, welcome. How are you feeling after a couple of busy weeks of travel? Well, thanks so much for having me, Ben. Um, really energized. I have to tell you, you know, going into Consensus and Milken, uh, we joined the Medici conference as well. You know, there's a real open question of, you know, in a year like this, what's the vibe going to be like? Are we going to see, you know, um, the same kinds of attendance, the same kinds of interest? And so, you know, it was really eye-opening um, getting to compare and contrast these two conferences, frankly, you know, consensus being, you know, such a landmark for the crypto industry in a place where, you know, so many different parts of the industry come together. And, and you know, um, Milken, of course, being one of the foremost global forums, um, you know, across financial services, um, you know, uh, global corporates and, and regulators. So uh, really exciting to compare and contrast. Amazing. And we'd love to kind of dig a little deeper there. So for those that haven't been to consensus or, or Milken, um, you gave kind of a brief description of kind of what they're like. Keep going into a little more detail, like what are the types of people you might see at consensus and how does that kind of typically flow? And then versus Milken, which I know is a little more formal and certainly kind of like some of the, the biggest and greatest from TradFi there. So like how, did, how does, uh, would you mind following a little more detail of kind of how those two conferences uh, do contrast? Your consensus is sort of a, a legendary conference in in crypto. You know, it's it was known for that um, you know incredible excitement and and uh, and vibe, especially you know in, in its earliest years, and and has matured over time to be a really important venue um, for you know regulatory discussion for um, uh, you know allocators to come together uh, as well as key projects. And so you know it's it's an interesting place to really get the pulse of what's happening across the industry. Um, you know, Milken uh, is is you know, crypto is a is a tiny portion of what happens at the Milken Global uh, Conference, and um, you know, in in recent years, uh, Coinbase uh, along with other uh, participants have aimed to make it um, you know uh, increase on the agenda, and I think we've we've done just that. And so you have you know, um, you know leading CEOs, um, you know, titans of the financial services industry, really coming together at Milken. 
Um, and, and having crypto be part of the conversation, therefore, becomes you know, a, a really interesting story. Um, you know, if we if we look at these two conferences, um, you know, a consensus this year just to take a little bit of the of the temperature. Uh, one thing I thought was really striking was the fact that you know we had a lot of big allocators, um, you know, come together. And and if you if you think about the um, institutional investors, pension funds, um, endowments, etc., you know, who would be among the most conservative you know, potential uh, allocators to, to funds and, and to projects in the space. Obviously, it's been a very challenging year for that set. And so I think it's, it's notable that, you know, what, what, what Consensus was able to do was to bring together some really strong names who remain focused and interested on the space. And I think, you know, um, the complexion of that group maybe is a little bit smaller this year, but also very focused and, and a group that has really done the work on understanding the value of crypto in an institutional portfolio um, and is actually you know, allocated and continued to allocate. So I, I thought that was a really telling moment because it reflects the fact that consensus continues to bring together uh, those who are, are quite serious about the space and, and influential, even as we may have lost a little bit of the, the buzz and sort of tourism of previous years. Yeah, that, that makes a ton of sense. I mean, I think if we were to have gone back a few years when the institutional part of the, the Coinbase business and ecosystem more broadly was very small, to think that crypto would even be on the agenda at, at Milken is, is kind of uh, incredible. And I often think in the space, we don't necessarily zoom out enough and see like what progress we have had. And certainly I know from many of your client meetings, like the people you're speaking with are, are kind of very large and important in both TradFi and, and obviously in crypto as well. Um, I guess I'm, I'm curious with those particular clients, like what's, the, what's kind of top of mind for them when it comes to crypto specifically? Yeah, well, I think, you know, and one interesting story that we can draw, you know, from the um, uh, from consensus, just starting there, and then we can hop to some of the milking conversations. You know, Jenny Johnson at Franklin Templeton headlined consensus. And, and you talk about like, you know, let's zoom out a little bit and think about where um, crypto falls in the broader, um, you know, agenda. Um, you know, having the CEO of one of the largest and most sophisticated asset managers in the world headline a consensus is really striking. And it speaks to what's top of mind. You know, when when we hear from um, Franklin Templeton and, uh, you know, about their agenda, you know, a lot of that discussion is things like their tokenized money market fund, um, you know, the potential for change that uh, blockchain technology can have on costs in the industry and in their own corporate portfolio. Um, and so I, those are a lot of the discussion points that we have, you know, with large asset managers um, and uh, and with investors as well, who are thinking about the use cases for this technology and have actually, again, done the work. You now have, you know, many years of, of effort that are starting to accumulate um, for some of these large, uh, you know, asset managers and, and investors as well on understanding these issues. A couple other big topics that, uh, that were salient, um, digital identity. Uh, definitely one of those, you know, uh, specific, use case specific items. It comes up a lot for us when we're uh, when we're talking about uh, topics like tokenization, and then also AI and crypto. You know, something that's resonating uh, in a lot of conversations as we look at the potential for um, uh, for digital digital assets and uh, and blockchain technology to really have an impact in um, uh, in creating sources of truth uh, in an AI driven world. So those were a couple of the you know big use case stories. Um, of course, most broadly speaking, tokenization remains uh, a really hot topic, and it's it's not just you know tokenizing existing structures, 
such as the money market fund, but also thinking about, you know, what are some of the novel ways in which uh, decreasing costs uh, can really change the asset management industry? Yeah, it's, it's kind of amazing to see um, kind of Franklin Templeton. So for those that um, I'm sure most are aware, an asset manager with somewhere north of $1.5 trillion of AUM. I mean, that's 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 a serious amount. Um, I'm curious, is there anything that surprised you? You kind of went in and it wasn't expected, but, but happened to kind of come up a few times perhaps. Sure. So if I think about maybe, you know, jumping over to the to some of the conversations at Milken, you know, where if I compare and contrast our experience from last year, a, a much buzzier year, um, you know, I, we had a question going in, you know, what will the complexion of our meetings look like when we are, you know, when we're in a, an environment where um, there's so much to focus on outside of crypto and we've got a very busy audience? What do those discussions look like? And I think what struck me is the depth of those conversations um, that we had at, at Milken with some of the, you know, sort of foremost, um, you know, in, investors and institutions out there. Um, you, we saw a deep focus on regulation, which on one hand is, is not a surprise, but also um, the, the sophistication and understanding um, and sort of knitting out of these topics um, uh, back to you know, the, the broader regulatory um, uh, environment was certainly a big theme that I thought you know, resonated even more deeply than, than I would have expected. Um, also, again, I'll just, you know, sort of refocus on some of the use case conversations that I, I thought resonated in ways uh, we didn't see last year. Last year, it felt like we were doing a lot of educating, helping people understand the basics. And uh, it felt like we fast forwarded, frankly, more than a year's worth of, of, uh, of effort into, you know, the kinds of work uh, from these leading institutions that was really quite deep and represents a deep engagement with the technology. So I think that was a surprise to the upside. Amazing. That's uh, that's always good to hear. And, and David, we want to bring you in here. I know you uh, you were also traveling Europe, Milk, and curious for kind of any of your thoughts from some of the meetings that you were having there and kind of how you felt about the, the conference in general. You know, I, I will say that there was a very strong consensus, uh, where, at least from my perspective at Milken, and it tended to be very negative as far as global economy and on risk assets writ large, um, not specific to crypto, just kind of broadly. Um, and, you know, I, I don't think there are a lot of areas for disagreement as far as the macro environment. You know, I, I really do think that people are focused on the right things as far as inflation, recession. Uh, but I'm more kind of concerned about people's views on the market outcomes. Perhaps it's because I saw how bearishly people tend to be positioned that I actually tend to be more positive as far as the medium to long term. Um, there's going to be obstacles, I think, in the immediate term with regards to what's happening with the credit crunch and the U.S. debt ceiling. We can talk about it later. But I think just when it comes to the macro, uh, you know, like I, I think there is certainly this uh, risk of inflation resilience. But I don't think anyone's expecting that inflation hasn't peaked. For example, a lot of people believe that the, at the very least, the Fed is done with its tightening cycle. But then it's the question of like, what's the magnitude of a possible recession? What does that prompt the Fed to do? Like, are they actually going to cut rates at the end of the year? And I think there was a little bit more uh controversy surrounding some of those opinions you know i i get it a lot of people believe core inflation is sticky i think it is but i just tend to believe that a lot of the labor data has already kind of peaked for example i i don't think it's the same sticking point that people tend to believe it is so you know i i, I just believe that the actual macro environment you know i i still do believe that a recession is coming but maybe it could be a little bit more mild but it's going to be there to prompt the Fed into action is kind of what my my ultimate takeaway is. And I think that 
we will see that that's going to be supportive for risk assets by the time we get into maybe Q3, Q4. Um, and then we're going to see perhaps a better market environment or at least a recovery from some of those risk assets and definitely a better environment for crypto. Amazing. And then I want to go back to you, to you here. I know you, you've got to run. So one final question, kind of zooming out, you've been at Coinbase a long time now. You've been kind of building the institutional business here and you're in PB uh, Credit Suisse before that. You, you've seen the landscape evolve over, over the last five years. I'm curious, like what's kind of different today versus maybe some of the years gone by and, and like how is that kind of pace of change um, evolving, do you think? Yeah, I think it. I think the pace of change is uh, speeding up dramatically, and the reason for that is, um, first of all, we've we've gotten through the threshold issues in crypto. You know, when I started, we were we were dealing with like the one hundred and one, like is there a qualified custodian in custody? You know, is there a qualified custodian in in crypto, or you know, how can I possibly move any kind of you know uh, meaningful? We were. Let me tie that again. Uh, when I got started, we were at the sort of 101 stage in crypto. You know, it would be, you know, uh, blockchain, not Bitcoin. Uh, it would be, you know, is there even a qualified custodian in crypto and what does that mean? It would be really basics on, you know, liquidity fragmentation. And, uh, and that has evolved so dramatically to where, you know, those aren't the focus topics. Uh, and instead, we're really digging deep on what the technology means, where this belongs in an institutional portfolio, um, and we've done multiple iterations. So the point where you have, um, you know, going back to the to the um, Milken conference, you know, we had uh, the head of digital assets at Texas Teachers. This is one of a you know top ten global pools of capital. You know, a, a pension fund that has a you know digital assets lead that's out there talking in depth, engaging in depth on you know what these use cases are, why it's interesting in a portfolio. And I think that really shows you just how far this conversation has evolved to where um, crypto isn't just its sort of, you know, a, a separate thing anymore. It's really integrated into a lot of these uh, discussions about global asset prices and about uh, global technology. So I, I think that there's fundamentally a different story at this point. And it's been really exciting to see how much that's accelerated, even just in comparing what these conferences have looked like in their complexion year over year. Yeah, I think I think that's uh, that makes a ton of good sense there. I guess there's one additional final question. Um, there's always been this meme and narrative about the institutions are coming. Now, I, I think we know, like we, we we sit in very fortunate seats that there are some part of the institutional investor base that are already here. But I think is it also fair to say that the institutional investor base is far more nuanced than just institutions, and we're kind of into that second and third stage now, where it's kind of the real money. And, and there's still that's where we're seeing a lot of traction now, but there is still some work to do around education. And and these these large companies they take time, but they are making the right steps. Is that is that kind of a, a rough kind of a fair statement in general? That's a great insight, Ben. It's a great way to characterize it. Um, you know, we, we we used to talk a lot about you know people would ask me what's what's my biggest concern with the space, um, and actually you know one of one of those top concerns was the proliferation of speculation, you know, that so much of the flows and so much of the activity was driven just by speculation. And I think that's really changed. And you see that in the way that corporates have engaged, um, you know, whether it's with NFTs, whether it's with modernizing their IP through blockchain technology, you see that with the way that real money, these large asset managers, um, you know, talking about these use cases, as well as institutional investors, um, you know, engage with, with this, you know, quite deeply. And so I, I think your characterization is right on. 
Amazing. Well, Lauren, thank you so, so much for joining. Um, that was super insightful. For those that didn't get a chance to go to Milk and or Consensus, hopefully that provided a bit of insight into to what goes on there. Um, and actually, a lot of the consensus videos are available online, so definitely encourage you to check some of those out. Milk um, and live streams too. You can see uh, our execs, Faryar Shahzad and uh, Emily Choi, up on their two panels. Good to know. Good to know. Well, there's some there's some homework uh, for for listeners. But Lauren, thank you so much for your time. Really appreciate it, and uh, I'm sure we'll see you again very soon. So moving on to a market update, um, Josh, as always, there's a ton going on. Um, what has been keeping you busy this week? Yeah, thanks, Ben. It's been a busy week here in markets with a lot of discuss, like you just alluded to. Uh, starting with BTC, the bellwether is trading slightly lower on the week with active price action, uh, with it trading, at, I believe, as high as like 29850 uh, only to move lower through the weekend. But really, the week's front and center story has been focused on the surge um, and on network activity on BTC due to rising interest in BRC20 and ordinals activity. Um, to just quickly walk everyone through some, some fundamentals here, BTC transaction activity spiked last week, resulting in, call it, about eight transactions per second processing on network on May 1st. Um, and that slightly came down to about seven transactions per second on Sunday. But either way, that's notable, given that weekend activity, generally speaking, is quite muted. Um, these numbers look to me to be the highest count of transactions per second in at least a year. Average transaction fees also spiked, hitting just over $19 on Sunday, uh, hitting fee levels last seen in June of 2021. Um, so BRC20 token ordinal activity underpinned the jump in these fees. Uh, looking at the ordinal's inscriptions data, May has seen a steep rise in daily inscriptions, uh, but more pronounced has, has been the large growth in users minting BRC20 tokens, uh, which ultimately resulted in a jump in block space demand. Fees spiked as the number of mint inscriptions jumped between Saturday and Sunday. Furthermore, during the weekend, BRC20 transactions surprisingly accounted for something like 53 and 63% of total transactions on the network, um, largely surpassing any non-ordinals transaction activity and eventually caused network congestion. Um, I know we'll dig into the super interesting topic with, with Sid in a bit, so I'll leave it there. Um, and on the back of this activity, the popular BTC L2 stacks has also outperformed as traders speculate that the L2 will be a beneficiary of BTC network congestion and growth in general for smart contract use cases. Um, in other news, the Ethereum Foundation transferred $30 million worth of ETH to Kraken. Uh, crypto Twitter noted that such sales in the past have preceded steep market declines. Um, now, as we always say here, the beauty of crypto is its transparency. Uh, and on-chain movement of this size from the foundation will always capture the attention uh, and I think really the imagination of the market. Uh, it's worth noting here that $30 million worth of selling really shouldn't serve as a headwind from a trading perspective, uh, given that ETH's liquidity is on average north of, I think, like 2 to $3 billion in real volume. Um, still, like a corporate executive choosing to sell stock, uh, insider activity, especially on the sell side, will always get eyes and impact sentiment. Uh, this looks to be no different in crypto. Um, turning over to alts, Pepe and the return of meme coins continues this week, and it captures our fascination uh, with its impressive run in the last seven days. Uh, just to note that we would expect to see ETH fees here decreasing um, as Pepe trading activity eventually moves from DEXs onto more centralized exchanges um, as they begin to be listed there. Uh, and finally, SUI, which has a which as a headline looks to be trading much weaker than in practice, uh, with I think unclear amounts of volume having traded at its record high of four dollars and fifty cents. Most exchange prices I saw had SUI opening, or SUI rather, opening closer to $1.40 to $2 for what it's worth. 
Um, but given the recent developments in ETH and the other scaling L2s, it'll be interesting to see how this plays out. We're obviously carefully watching the race between Sway and Aptos and seeing whether either chain sees meaningful developer buy-in. Um, to close, in the week ahead, we've had you know, tons of macro to focus on that I know David's going to talk about, but I do find it notable that in yesterday's Fed Senior Loan Officer Survey, we continue to see tightening credit conditions and a particularly worsening outlook for commercial real estate. Um, this is real Im implications, I think, for regional banks in particular, as it has been noted that regional bank loan exposures um, to, to commercial real estate are multiples higher than what you'd see in larger systemic banks. Uh, we really joke that everyone's a financial economist nowadays, and we're no different. Uh, so continuing to watch for global macro events and its impact on financial market stability is still top of mind for us. Uh, with that, back to you, Ben. Amazing. Thanks, Josh. Uh, an amazing rundown. So uh, so Pepe, up 81% after we reported on it last week. Did you uh, manage to go out and, and buy any on Uniswap? You know, sadly, I did not. If I had some, maybe I wouldn't be working <laughs> more. But uh, yeah, next time. Yeah, yeah. It still it continues to amaze me. It'd be interesting to see what happens when, um, obviously, it's now listed on Binance um, and see if other exchanges follow suit as well. Um, but the, the volumes are so high, it's kind of hard to ignore. Um, yeah. from, a, from, a, from a revenue perspective. Um, I'm curious, has that actually led to any follow-on from other meme coins? Have you seen strength in, in others at all? Yeah, I, I did see that there was also, I think Floki was a token that was called up 12% on the week. Um, I did see that there were, in general, meme coins seem to be back in fashion. I don't have the list in front of me now, but it did seem like there was some follow-through there. Interesting. Yeah, I'm interested to see if that kind of leads on to a kind of retail getting more engaged with other parts of the market as well. Um, so you mentioned the uh, the loan officer survey. Um, David, would love to kind of move on to macro now, uh, and perhaps we can kind of touch upon that. But but what else have you been looking at this week uh, from a macro perspective, and should we be keeping an eye on going forwards? Yeah. Okay. So when it comes to macro, I would say that similar to kind of what I was saying earlier, you know, most of the people are aligned as far as what's going on on disinflation, the possibility of recession. But uh, you know, Josh brings up a really good point about what's going on in the you know credit cycle particularly this big story about what's happening right now on the U.S. Regu uh, US regional banks. Um, the big story is definitely on the credit crunch. And you know, we've been talking about it, right? Like, you know, over the last couple of weeks, we've mentioned that, for example, $400 billion has kind of gone in money market funds. Um, this is reduced bank reserves. Uh, of course, then that money isn't able to be lent out. And, you know, by the way, the actual size of that impact is going to be much greater than 400 or $416 billion because, there's a money multiplier effect, right? So we've got First Republic Bank being sold to JP Morgan, PacWest looking for strategic options. You know, the, the scariest thing, as Josh kind of mentioned, is that these guys are sitting on huge commercial real estate loan portfolios. And now that's sitting at these larger banks. And we don't really have any idea about what that means. Like, I, I personally think that this could be part of the next big issue that's going to hit the economy. And we really don't have the means to assess that risk. Like, there's no exhaustive data set that tells us how these loans are doing. Uh, you know, are people occupying these spaces or is everyone working from home these days? I mean, we, we really just don't know what's going on. So, you know, Josh correctly pointed out the senior loan officer opinion survey uh, that came up from the Fed uh, just Monday. And, you know, this is showing that, you know, on the one hand, demand for credit is tightening, uh, but conditions, I'm sorry, the demand for credit is decreasing, but conditions are tightening. Now, what's odd about this data, though, is that, yes, things are tightening, but it hasn't accelerated since the banking turmoil really got underway. Like post SVB, for example, there's tightening, but it's almost like no worse than what we saw in January. So 
it is a really tough story to kind of parse overall. Um, so, you know, and if this is happening on the credit side, then of course there's going to be broader implications for the economy, right? Like how's this going to impact inflation? Well, if this is, if there really is like a massive credit crunch and we are definitely dealing with it right now, housing starts to fall, we're left in a lower inflation uh, environment that ultimately does still translate to what I think is going to happen, which is the fed is going to cut rates uh, by year end. And in my mind, that should still mean that theoretically we'll have a better market, but that assumes there's not going to be a larger financial crisis. So that's kind of what makes it really difficult to parse this right now, because in order to kind of get to that better market environment that I'm talking about, um, which I totally think is possible by the latter part of the third quarter, maybe Q4, uh, but we really have to kind of get through this credit situation in regional banks. And then after that, we also have to deal with this simultaneous standoff on the U.S. debt ceiling. And on that front, you know, and, and I you know Greg has opinions on this, you, yourself does too, but it really feels like anything can happen there. Awesome. So let's let's bring Greg in uh, on, on that basis then. So we, we do have the, the debt ceiling. We have got a, a kind of a banking crisis, which is uh, somewhat, somewhat chronic at this point. Like, how does crypto react? And, and maybe, Greg, let's let's start with you. Like, what are some of the paths that, that Bitcoin could take? And should we also split out Bitcoin versus Ethereum versus outs as well, perhaps? Yeah, it's a good question. Um, you know, in my view, Bitcoin has obviously that digital gold um, sort of place in, in uh, the crypto portfolio. Um, and if we look back to 2011, which is really the best analog we have for what's going on right now, um, you know, gold traded up 14 percent, um, you know, right after uh, the downgrade, traded up 26 percent kind of around the downgrade. So, you know, in the weeks leading up to it, uh, up to the peak um, and it went from being a 10 vol asset to a, uh, a 40 vol asset. So. Uh, and, and I would add to that, we've also seen Bitcoin sort of have this financial stability hedge um, narrative after, you know, the bank started to fail, right? We saw, you know, SVB failed, Bitcoin got bid up. When First Republic ran into more problems, again, Bitcoin was bid up. Um, so I definitely think there's a case to be made that, you know, if we do, um, you know, run into an issue with this uh, debt ceiling, whether we just take it down to the wire or God forbid, we do default. Um, there is a case to be made where we could see Bitcoin significantly higher. I do think Bitcoin's very different than everything else in crypto. I wouldn't expect crypto as a whole to trade higher. Um, you know, ETH and all the altcoins, in my mind, they're more like risk assets, right? Um, so I would expect those uh, tokens to trade down along with the S and P. Um, credit spreads will widen. Um, so, yeah, we'll have to see kind of how this plays out. But I do think Bitcoin could be a, a very good hedge for this situation. Yeah, I, I, I tend to tend to agree with you there. Um, I, I think especially kind of given where we've been trading of late, we've certainly come off the highs pretty significantly. But David, curious, how do you uh, see, and I know you're kind of still thinking through this, but curious kind of how you think Bitcoin could react and also ETH and other assets? Yeah, I, I take a little bit more of a nuanced view uh, where it comes to this. It's not because I don't believe in the uh, fundamentals, the store value properties that uh, Greg's kind of talking about. I think that's true. But there are a few things, right? Like, um, number one, we've already seen a lot of that post SVB. Like we saw that uh, Bitcoin already had a pretty strong appreciation because 
a lot of those depositors that were concerned about having their funds at, at SVB or in the traditional financial system uh, definitely moved a lot and those flows were absorbed uh, in favor of an asset that exists outside of the like traditional financial system. And it made perfect sense. I don't know if that's going to continue in the exact same way. And, and keep in mind, I, I do believe that, uh, you know, very likely it's not about the uh, upside. It's more about the upside potential rather and less about the downside. Like I, I think the downside regardless will be limited because of those properties that Bitcoin has. But I also believe that a lot of market players are probably going to look at this more tactically uh, rather than like look at the fundamentals of the situation. Like it wasn't clear back in like 2011. Yes, we saw gold prices actually rally pretty sharply as, as Greg kind of mentioned, but we also had another debt ceiling crisis in 2013 where gold did poorly. And uh, of course, that was kind of entangled with the whole uh, easing of uh, or rather tapering of quantitative easing that the Fed had. Uh, so it's not necessarily positive that like what was driving like prices at, the, at that time. But I, you know, I sympathize with the idea that Bitcoin wasn't very ubiquitous in 2011. And so if like you had that kind of asset, maybe it could do, be, do better. Like I, I think the uncertainty is just like a really, really high. So I like the idea of playing this through vol rather than the spot market, just because I think we aren't really sure like how that's going to play out. Like, there's a lot of offsetting uh, factors for the positives here. Yeah, in interesting. I mean, that's a, that's a perfect lead in. Maybe, Greg, you, you pick up the baton here and you, I know you're going to be talking a little bit about implied vol and how that softened a little bit. So uh, curious to David's comment there, like playing this through vol versus spot, um, what you think about that and maybe what the markets are telling us. Yeah, I think it makes a ton of sense. Um, you know, one, we have implied vol levels that are, uh, you know, at you know, historic lows for Bitcoin um, right now. Um, and yeah, obviously Bitcoin, in my view, could trade uh, like a store of value, um, like a safe haven. But David could also be right where it trades like a risk asset. Either way, um, you know, vol is likely to go up. Um, so it, it makes sense to uh, to play it through that part of the market. The only issue with that is um, the options market in, in cryptos just often not as liquid as we'd like it to be. So depending on what kind of size you're looking to put on, that may or may not be an option. No pun intended. <laughs> pun, pun taken. Um, so what, what about other trade flows this week? Yeah, so I mean, we've been range bound for going on six weeks now. Uh, it's no, no secret to anybody uh, listening to this call. You know, Bitcoin's been between call it 27,000 and 30,000, uh, ETH between 1,800 and 2,000. Really, we're seeing similar price action in the larger, more liquid altcoins. Um, you know, it's, it's rather uh, uninspiring, I would say. We are seeing some folks trade the range, uh, but for the most part, traders are really just watching and, and waiting. Um, one thing I like to look at is the change in global open interest um, for perpetual futures. And I have a slide on this if uh, we want to bring it up next. Thank you. Um, so this is uh, open interest over the last month um, for BTC, ETH, and a, a number of other coins. Uh, for those listening on podcasts, what this slide shows is 
Open interest in BTC and ETH uh, over the last four weeks is pretty much flat. Um, and OI for altcoins is more or less declining across a range of them. You know, funding rates marginally positive, uh, but again, nothing really screams, you know, out of the ordinary there. So, you know, overall, the, the market's really just really quiet now. And we're waiting for, you know, whatever the next catalyst may be to, uh, to allow us to pick a direction. We are see this, seeing this reflected in implied vol. Um, you know, as we just talked about, implied volatilities are coming way in. Um, May at the money, Bitcoin vol has come in seven points in the last month. Uh, ETH has come in six points. Both are now around 48. Uh, like I said, these are some of the lowest levels we've seen. Uh, and now, there's nothing obviously to stop implied vol from continuing to soften, but this does set up a nice opportunity uh, to be able to express whatever view you may have. Um, so we are seeing some of that in the market actually. Last week we saw May and June, uh, 30 and 31,000 strike calls bought in BTC uh, and ETH again, May, June expiries. We saw 2,000, 2,100 strikes calls bought um, so we are seeing people that, you know, I keep hearing over and over again, I'm a medium, long-term, constructive on the market. Uh, we're seeing a lot of folks uh, express that view through the options uh, market right now, again, because vols are just, uh, just too cheap here. Interesting. I guess we'll have to keep an eye out and see if we see some of that, um, I guess, Delta hedging moving into the spot market as, uh, as dealers are taken out of that vol potentially. Um, Interesting. And I guess, Greg, curious what kind of conversations you're having with clients, like what are people thinking about the market? Are they trying to trying to wait for their next catalyst? Are they speculating as to what that might be? Or are they kind of just sitting on their hands for the time being and, and waiting, waiting for that break out of the range that we're, we're in? Yeah, it's a good question, Ben. Uh, I would say the uh, debt ceiling is coming up in client conversations quite a bit. Uh, the market is split on whether this could be, you know, a bullish or bearish event for, for Bitcoin. And I think that's probably why you're not seeing, uh, you know, Bitcoin bid up kind of into today and, and uh, you know, later on this week. You know, Biden, Speaker McCarthy um, are meeting today. So we'll learn uh, more about those negotiations um, this afternoon. Um but so so that's obviously one focus. And then the, the rest is really just, yeah, waiting for, um, you know, a, a direction to be picked. Uh, we got to break out of this range. Most people, I think, uh, like I said, they're medium to long term uh, bullish. I'm in that camp as well. Um, so I think the expectation is we're going to break out to the upside. Uh, the question is, when will that happen and what the catalyst will be? Yeah, that makes, uh, that makes a ton of sense. Cool. Well, thank you very much, Greg. Thank you, David. Um, Sid, moving on to you. And let's dive into a bit more on the Bitcoin congestion uh, over the last uh, week or so. Yeah, definitely. Um, so that's kind of been the story of the week uh, for, for Bitcoin, uh, the largest blockchain, right? Uh, it's been BRC20s, as, as Josh uh, mentioned earlier in the call. You know, the cumulative market cap is, you know, over $700 million uh, at the moment. And, uh, you know, over 13,000 of these tokens have been minted. Um, and, uh, you know, some popular names include Ordi, 
Pepe meme OG, you know, it's, it's all of the meme coin kind of variety. Um, but the leader seems to be this token called Ordi, which is at a $450 million market cap at the moment. Uh, so pretty sizable. Um, but uh, I think one thing I just wanted to clarify for listeners is how this technology kind of differs from ERC20s on EVM blockchains, because the name is very similar, BRC20s and ERC20s. I think it's just for users familiarity, but the reality is it's actually more like an NFT. Uh, so what a BRC20 is, is basically just um, a piece of JSON text put on a, on, a, on the blockchain in a script format using the ordinals inscription, um, where it just assigns a, a given token to a Satoshi, allowing it to be transferred between users. Uh, and so this metadata lives per, per Satoshi on, on the chain. Uh, and so people have been adding these inscriptions to represent tokens, basically, and calling them BRC20s. Um, uh, this is very different than, you know, uh, on the EVM with ERC20 tokens, which are smart contracts, um, which have functions that can be called and then that makes them have additional functionality, makes them composable, et cetera, use, used in DeFi and, uh, and other use cases, right? So it's, it's very much different uh, from a tech perspective, but... Uh, the core use case, which is to represent arbitrary assets uh, and tokens and starting with meme coins, especially with the meme coin frenzy on Ethereum, has translated over to Bitcoin now. Um, and as Josh mentioned earlier, again, the metrics are staggering, to say the least. Um, you know, over 50% of, of transactions on the network were BRC20 related and, and then fees as well went to um an extreme level almost um, with like many transactions, even for me personally, I was trying to make transactions on chain. They were taking hours to actually confirm. And uh, this led to Binance halting withdrawals of Bitcoin for a while, and they had to adjust their fees. Uh, for folks uh, uh, viewing the PowerPoint, you can see on the slides just uh, how staggering of, a, of an increase in fees and transaction counts the blockchain has experienced. Um, great stat from David, you know, transaction fees were five standard deviations above the one year rolling average, uh, which is, you know, pretty noteworthy for sure. And, um, and yeah, I mean, uh, the, the question here remains, uh, you know, is this a passing phenomenon? Is this a fad? Is it going to stay or not? Um, I think it's a, it's a, it's a TBD to see, uh, you know, what happens here, but, uh, definitely a lot of attention, uh, and, and usage. Interesting. So just digging into Audi a little bit, a bit, bit, bit more, that was the one that you said is kind of most popular. Um, if I understood this correctly, it's essentially a, a meme coin on Bitcoin dressed up as an ERC20 because of the BRC20 moniker. Is that fair? Yep, that's fair. Wow. So, so I guess if we then zoom out slightly more, so we've got meme memes on Ethereum, we've got memes on Bitcoin. Like These are things that we see when when retail kind of starts to get engaged and... and uh, in the past, that has kind of been the first thing that, that, ha that has moved potentially before other things start to get a bit of a bid. Um, I guess that's that's kind of interesting. Is there any way of us figuring out like where this activity is coming from or like what time of day to try and kind of like back out whether or not it's kind of long term holders or if it's kind of people new to Bitcoin or like trying to get some of the motivations behind it, essentially? Yeah, for sure. Um, so. A lot of this seems to, I think it's a combination. Uh, one is there is a pretty large uh, contingent of very ardent Bitcoin community holders, right? Uh, who are just hodl for life kind of uh, very ardent supporters. And, uh, you know, a few community leaders, they've started to host Twitter spaces and things like that, where, you know, tens of thousands of people have joined in to listen in, um, especially with Taproot, because it's kind of a fundamental uh, 
ideological debate as well with the usage of Bitcoin as a chain, whether it should be used for these tokens, you know, uh, fees clogging it up, uh, its security budget and other, other you know, discussions around that. Um, and uh, but but on the flip side, in terms of like the user base of, you know, Bitcoin fans, there's also how difficult it is to actually make a BRC20 transaction today and, and figure this space out. It's very much in its nascency. Uh, so I personally actually tried it out and uh, a like the wallet infrastructure, only a few wallets actually support showing BRC20s, you know, the Ordinals wallet, the Unisat wallet, etc. And then block explorers, like traditional block explorers still are, don't clearly show all the BRC20 transactions. You need a kind of ordinals explorer to see them. Um, and, and just the infrastructure around it uh, to know what's a scam, what's not, because anyone can make a JSON inscription, right? And then uh, it kind of depends on the marketing and the memeing of it to uh, see these multiples. And it's and it's listed on these, on, these, on these price websites. It's not even listed on the main coin market caps, coin geckos of the world, right? So... This entire kind of shadow ecosystem is developing over here, uh, so it's it's pretty hard. It requires quite a lot of in-depth digging uh, um, to even get exposure to this. But I think what's drawing more attention to it is is simply the multiples. Uh, Ordi was, you know, you know, you know, sitting at like sub 100 million market cap uh, a few days ago, and it's like 450 million dollars now. So uh, that's just the largest asset. There's several other multiples that people have seen. So I think that's the biggest thing. Wow. And, and what do those kind of ardent Bitcoin supporters you mentioned, like cause there, was, there was a lot of people in the past when ordinals came out, they were like, Bitcoin should be simple. We don't need to do anything more to it. It's, it's digital gold. We, we don't need composability. We don't need smart contracts. Like what, what are some of those people that are maybe slightly more traditional in their perspective of Bitcoin? Like what do they think about it? Yeah, it's a, it's a tough debate. I mean, how do you balance out the incentives? Uh, on the one hand, you want usage of the network. Uh, but on the other hand, uh, using it at this format, especially in this kind of rudimentary format, in putting uh, inscriptions on chain, it's not the most efficient usage of it. And it's, uh, and it's you know, it's not scalable for sure. It's just going to clog up the network. Already where we're seeing the limits of it, uh, transactions take ages and it becomes far more expensive to make a transaction on chain, right? Uh, and it also leads this, this kind of expense is not going back to users or getting burnt. It's going to miners uh, who are, you know, you know, struggling to kind of keep up with the difficulty, right? So, um, so I, I think it's an ideological debate there as to how do we make it usable for users, um, potentially using scaling solutions like Stacks or Lightning Network, uh, but also enable you know the the chain itself to stay stay strong with its security budget. You know, for miners to actually be incentivized to, um, you know, keep uh, uh, producing blocks. Yeah, interesting. And you mentioned earlier on about um, there was obviously fees got very, very high. And, and I believe there was actually a trading hole. So Josh, we'd love to bring you in here. Um, what happened there with regards to a trading hole? And, and I guess how did that affect the market? Yeah, so um, Binance essentially halted trading on two separate occasions yesterday. And I think from a trading perspective, um, the market at this point in time essentially feels very, very jittery. Um, so any news of any sort of halted exchange withdrawals, even if it's for legitimate rational reasons, I think can result in um, somewhat of like an irrational sell-off given broader fears that something more nefarious is happening in the system. Um, so I think headline risk at this time still seems very high to me. So in these generally more positive markets um, with worsening liquidity conditions, I think sudden de-risking can have outsized market impact, which is I think what we saw with Binance. Um, additionally, from a trading perspective, I think that for those listeners who I think um, might express crypto views via miners, like Sid just mentioned, 
I think is some people have said that it could be interesting to pay attention to those rising network fees, um, as this does positively impact minor revenue streams who are processing these transactions, um, which is obviously taking on a heightened importance as we approach BTC's halving next year. Yeah, that makes a, a ton of sense. So, so Sid, how did you did you manage to have success in your your minting and ord or whichever uh, token you BRC twenty you chose? Yeah, I did. I did. Um, it did take a take a bit of a learning curve, though. But uh, I did um, just to see the experience, and it yeah it opens your eyes to how much more infrastructure there is to be built. And then you know the ideological question: Is it even worth building this infrastructure? Is it just a proof of concept? It was meant as a proof of concept, as an experiment, and it's kind of just taken off to the races. So now it's like TBD: Will there be infrastructure built around this? Will wallets support it? Uh, is this the final state of it, or does it evolve? Move on to Lightning, uh, other third-party services, etc., and, and scale from there. Wow! I guess if there was a byproduct where more people use Lightning, that that could be kind of interesting, right? That would be um, uh, maybe a, a good uh, second-order effect of, um, of something like this. Um, great, awesome. Well, thank you very much, Sid. Uh, always uh, interesting and uh, sometimes quite tough to get get one's head around, but interesting nonetheless. Uh, that is it for today. Uh, a big thank you to the whole team and for Lauren, our special guest today. Um, and otherwise, thanks for joining us and we'll see you next week. Take care. All statements and analysis correspond to the date of this recording. This recording is only intended for sophisticated investors. This recording should not be copied, distributed, published or reproduced in whole or in part. Neither Coinbase nor any of its affiliates make any representation or warranty as to the accuracy or completeness of the statements or any of the information contained in this recording. The views expressed in this recording are not necessarily those of Coinbase. Coinbase is not providing any financial, legal, accounting or tax advice or recommendations. The receipt of this recording by any listener is not to be taken as a giving of investment advice by Coinbase to that listener.